You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. So besides hysteria field toilet paper hoarding, can't believe I just said that. <laughs> What other sales spiked drastically during the COVID-19 pandemic? (laughs) Well, I've heard about a lot of different things, everything from computer monitors to exercise equipment, Mm. basically anything that you need to kind of live your full life, live your best life at home. Yeah. Did you buy any more alcohol? (laughs) You got me. Yeah, actually I did. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people did. Yeah. According to (laughs) Nielsen, alcohol purchases went up 55% in the second week of March to the third. Beer and cider, 42%. Wine sales, 66%. I'm a big Mm. chunk of that. And then online alcohol sales increased 243% from the same period a year ago. It's crazy. Wow. That's amazing. So, what's your favorite kind of beer? I don't really drink beer. I'm not a beer person. Sorry. Mm. <laughs> I drink <laughs> when wine. When you do, when you do, what would you reach for? Uh, I've not had a beer in like five years. Uh, it's probably a Heineken or a Grolsch or mm. a real beer. Nothing that's got a bikini on it or something. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I like the Mexican beers. Pacifico is my favorite. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. They're actually pretty good as well. Yeah. A little bit of lime. It's great. Okay, so before we get started, why don't you read two or three reviews for us? Yeah, that sounds good. And we started reading reviews, number one, because we love to hear what you have to say. And second, because we'd love it if you would write more reviews for us. They're very helpful for us with Apple in particular. So please keep the reviews coming. We really appreciate them and are very grateful for the feedback. So today we're going to read three reviews, starting with a review from T. Godare. And the review goes, I truly enjoy listening to these podcasts. Chad and Nico make these both entertaining and educational and always bring it back to brand marketing and the lessons learned. Thanks, T. Godare. Nice. And then the next one is from Natalie225. And this review says, great podcast discussing branding downfalls and recoveries. Love the lessons from these inspiring stories from real companies. Nico and Chad are awesome hosts. Thanks, Natalie225. Um, And then the last one is going to be from Joe Bennett for Senate. (laughs) 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 Love the username. That's great. And it says, I started listening to this podcast a couple weeks ago, and I've really enjoyed it. The stories and ideas discussed are interesting, useful, and delivered in a very entertaining way. I'm excited for more episodes. Nice. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Let's keep those reviews coming. Yeah. So what are we talking about today? What kind of beer do you like? Heineken. Heineken? Oh, man, that hits you. (laughs) That's pretty, pretty. I was thinking about playing that at the end of today's show, and I thought we can't leave our listeners with that. (laughs) No, that's that's a little intense. We've definitely started things off with a bang. Yeah, that's from, I think, a 1986 movie called Blue Velvet. And we're, uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll be covering Pap's Blue Ribbon today. And nice. I thought that might set the stage for us really well. So older <laughs> beers, as we know it, are either non-existent or they're seriously in decline. If you think of like Schultz, if you think of Schlitz, you think of Olympia or Ollie 
or Wiedemann. Actually, a fun fact is that our wedding reception was at the Wiedemann Mansion in Northern Kentucky. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because we both like old things and antique type stuff. And yeah. it's a very quaint little mansion on a hill where the Wiedemann family lived that made the beer that you can't buy anymore. So during this time, this old beer, think of the 50s and 60s, beer was really marketed towards older men. And it was for real men, for lack of a better word. A man's man. A man's man, exactly. (laughs) You know, this was the era where beer brands were on top and they were really a big deal during this time. Yeah. So Paps was founded in 1844. And the Paps Blue Ribbon Company, they weren't known as PBR yet at this at this time. They were a really big player within the beer category. Here's an ad that I want to play from the 50s. What do you have? Paps Blue Ribbon. What'll you have? Paps Blue Ribbon. When a waitress glides up to your place with a pretty smile upon her face, here's the way to really romance her. Give her that Paps Blue Ribbon answer. What do you have? Paps Blue Ribbon. What'll you have? Paps Blue Ribbon. What'll you have? Paps Blue Ribbon. Paps Blue Ribbon beer. Smoother, smoother, smoother flavors. Best in sparkle, million flavors. Taste that smoother, smoother flavor. Paps Blue Oh, man, that's like (laughs) when jingles were still jingles. Yeah, yeah, that's really fun. Great stuff. And for our listeners, that whole ad is basically animated. It looks like a Mickey Mouse cartoon. So, yeah, they really leaned into the quality here. So, Pabst Blue Ribbon meant quality. It was touted as a heritage beer brand. Just like Miller High Life's tagline, the champagnes of beer, perhaps was all about quality. And here's another ad that I want to play from the 60s, which is also just gold. They look like displaced train engines, these strange contraptions from another time. And today at an old time threshing bee, these great machines take you back to the rugged excitement of the days when steam powered the harvest. To have a Pabst Blue Ribbon beer is to recapture that same feeling. People still look for and enjoy the good things from the past. Blue Ribbon is one of them. Still brewed slowly and naturally, like it was when it won the Blue Ribbon. So again, you can hear it's all about the heritage. It's really, to your point, the man's man standing around massive machinery and drinking a beer in the end of its day on a farm. Yeah, and they're already really heavily playing into nostalgia from the past and kind of what their roots were and how they came to be. So the 80s rolled around and men realized that they would die young if they continue eating fatty foods, drink heavy beer, smoke, and ignore their health. (laughs) What? You you can't do all those things and be healthy? Fortunately, no. I am not on board with that. That's not fair. And that was the birth (laughs) of light beers. But light and coarse light really started taking off. And taste great, less filling, which is Miller Lite's slogan, was about just that. So so beer brands that couldn't or didn't follow this low-calorie trend really struggled. And perhaps really held into the older demographic, the ones that loved them during their peak. And here's another ad that I want to play from 1978. Tonight. It was quite a fight, now it's all behind Got Blue Ribbon on my mind I've got Pabst Blue Ribbon on my mind There are a lot of beers, but there's only one Pabst It's brewed to be the best, naturally with 
with no artificial ingredients, and you can taste it. I've got that blue ribbon on my mind. Yeah, you can also just hear that's a basketball coach that drinks the paps after his team won. Again, it's all about nostalgia and authenticity within the brand. Yeah, very simple, very straightforward, catchy little jingle. Yeah. There's no sex there. It's just a very simple message. Which has been always their communication up until this point. Right. Yeah. So then after this period, then we start to see a decline from them being kind of at the top of the beer game. Throughout the 90s, Pabst starts losing market share. Pabst breweries were closing. They had rumors circulating that they were going to sell their formula to Miller. Things were just really getting bad. And by the turn of the century, they were just pretty much at the end of their rope. They had actually had 23 straight years of declining sales. Yes. How, how do you sustain that? And how oh, do you not man. do anything about it for such a long time? <laughs> wow. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's just mentally got to be grinding to go through that much decline for that long of a period of time. Yeah. They went from selling over 20 million barrels a year in the 70s to fewer than 1 million barrels a year in 2001. And that's considering that 30 years, the population grew drastically as well from the 70s. <laughs> yeah, your uh, consumer base should be getting larger, yeah, sure. not smaller, Ouch. especially for a mass consumer product. So then they hire a 27-year-old marketing manager named Neil Stewart. And this is a little bit of a Hail Mary, an attempt to try to revitalize the brand with a young smart kind of hip marketing manager. Yeah, and you know that 27 is obviously the the magic number year. I did not know that. Yeah, because the 27-year club, right? Janice Chaplin, Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, all these people died at 27. Oh. If you go to Wikipedia and you just type in 27-year-old club, there's a massive list of very famous people <laughs> that either committed suicide or died at 27. So yes, he was 27 wow. years old. Yes. Well, so this is, this is going to go the opposite direction <laughs> of that. <laughs> and we're actually going to see a success story coming from this 27-year number. So Neil Stewart hires an ad agency called Frizz. And it was led by a young guy named Ted Wright. And the deal was that there just wasn't any budget. <laughs> there was no advertising or traditional marketing because they've been on these 23 years of decline. Sales keep going down, down, down. Budgets keep getting smaller and smaller. And again, they're kind of at the end of their rope. So they just don't have the money to spend on a big budget. And Ted Wright, who again was the founder of Frizz, he wrote a book called Fizz, Harness the Power of Word of Mouth Marketing to Drive Brand Growth. And in that, he said, to be honest, my firm got the job largely because we were young, brash, and cheap. I couldn't have been more proud. So the ad agency gets a little bit lucky to get this opportunity with a really big kind of heritage brand and an opportunity to turn them around but at the same time, they have to do it with one hand tied behind their back. One because hand. <laughs> one hand. <laughs> both hands, both feet, and Hopping someone else's one hand. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. there's no budget. There's just nothing to work with. I mean, think about it. How do you turn around a 23-year-old declining brand mm. with no marketing budget? Oh, man. Like most ad agencies would just say pass, yeah. right? It's just not possible. So- 
they get creative about it and they say, all right, let's really just sit down together. Let's look at all the numbers and dissect this thing. And they realize that Pabst was still actually doing okay in a few markets. There were five markets actually where the brand was growing and they had a couple of markets that they were experiencing significant growth, literally doubling sales month over month. Mm. So they actually decide, all right, well, our ad budget is so small that we may as well just (laughs) spend the remaining dollars that we have to go visit those markets and talk to the people on the ground, find out what's going on, what's driving those sales in these specific areas where things are going well. So that's what they do. So they discovered that people who were drinking PBR in these cities really loved it because it felt authentic, right? That's the first piece of the puzzle here. They liked that they'd never seen an ad for PBR. Mm. And they were reacting to the overbranding of other beer brands, which was at this point filled with bikini models and Spuds McKenzie. Let's play this next seven seconds. With a beach in sight and a cold bud light, he's in the party frenzy. He's Spuds McKenzie. What party loving happening, dude? Man, so for those who don't know who Spud McKenzie is, he's a dog on a skateboard with sunglasses on, surrounded by McKinney models, lying in the beach, basically. That's what these people were used to seeing when they think of beer brands. And that's why they were drinking PBR, because up until this point, because of the decline, there were no mass advertising running. So Wright and Stewart really took this to heart. Like these people were actually consuming their products because they've never been marketed to. Right. There's a really cool article on Lawrence.com by Carlos Centino, and I quote, in 2002, PAP spent 427,000 measured media, which included television, magazines, billboards, radios, and newspaper, compared to Anheuser-Busch's 490 million and Miller 275 million. Jeez. That's... Just look at the difference there, right? And just in general, a $427,000 <sighs> advertising budget. I mean, there are, there are companies who make Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Super Bowl alone is 10 to 11 million. And there are companies who make $10 million a year in revenue that spend $427,000 on an ad budget that are just tiny little, what we would consider small businesses. Yeah. It's amazing really how little that actually is for a national brand to be spending. Yeah, so they kind of like embrace this non-strategy strategy at this mm. point. So they realize that, hang on a minute, there are these people, they are called hipsters, and they're in Portland, Oregon, and they're drinking my products because they feel it's authentic and they've never seen ads from me. So you can ask yourself, was this an actual strategy they were doing or is it just by accident that they discovered this in good timing? Mm, Yeah, that's a really good question because it seems like it's a little bit of kind of falling into this strategy versus really like purposefully going after it and planning it out. Yeah, exactly. So they knew that at this point, a big ad campaign would do actually more harm than good. But besides the fact that they can't afford it. So they really embraced storytelling and they started one of the most successful influencer marketing strategies in recent history. And Wright says, quote, the trick was to get the most influential people among this already influential group of early hipsters to talk to their friends about PBR. 
all we had to do is give them a good story to share. And that's exactly what they started doing. Yeah, exactly. So they really just tried to take it to the street level, just go as micro as they possibly could. And they kept giving the people who loved the beer more reasons to talk about it. They just wanted to create experiences and memories with people that would be very impressionable and make them feel that the brand was a part of who they were. So they pioneered actually a lot of the craft beer marketing strategies that are still actually very big and in use today amongst a lot of these local-based craft breweries develop a strong presence in very specific key markets. And they did that with just building strong relationships at a one-to-one level with actual customers, like literally one person at a time They gave those people some experiences that would make them want to promote the brand. So Ted Wright, the founder of Frizz, said, First, Stuart and I figured out what made the brand talkable. By talking to the young people in Portland and Pittsburgh, we discovered that they loved PBR for being unpretentious and low profile. So we hit the streets and started offering our support to creative people doing cool, interesting things just for the sake of it. If we found young people having bike messenger races, we'd hang out with them and offer them a sign to hang at their next event. We brought beer and hats to gallery openings, skating parties, juggling contests, you name it. We even gave six packs of beer to Mini Kiss, a Kiss tribute band whose members were all little people. I looked up Mini Kiss yesterday in research for today as tonight yeah it's, it's literally a kiss rock band that's smaller it's, it's really interesting it's some good stuff go check it out yeah it's, it's pretty fun so they just embrace this completely micro strategy and ted wright continues for someone who isn't looking to be recognized Recognition, particularly from a beloved brand, can be a powerful thing. Even more powerful is when that brand asks for nothing in return. We made an impression with these young people, and we started a lot of conversations. And I think it really, really worked. But you can ask yourself again, was this a fluke? Was this a fluke due to they didn't have any budgets and they were just chasing where the sales were? Or was this a very well thought out strategy that they were busy executing? But it did work. In 2002, PBR grew with 5%. In 2003 and 4, with 15%. In 2004, PBR was featured in the New York Times magazine story, and the headline read, The Marketing of No Marketing, and was named one of Fast Company's most innovative companies. And I don't really agree with that. The headline should have read, The Marketing of No Advertising because they did do a lot of marketing during this point. This is grassroots influencer marketing. This is not a company that's not doing any marketing. They didn't do any advertising as we know today. But anyway, in 2006, PBR had recorded a combined annual growth of 55% and had almost doubled its volume. In 2006, it has grown a minimum of 10% in every state and 50% in more than 30 states. So it really started picking up steam at this point. Yeah. And then that trend continues from 2008 to 2012. It was one of the top growing beer brands in the entire United States. And it just keeps going. In 2009, sales jumped by 25%. In 2010, increased by nearly 18%. In 2011, by 14%. So while it still hasn't approached the massive reach of Budweiser, 
PBR actually overtook Coors in volume sales back in 2006 and Sam Adams in 2010. That is amazing. Yeah. And then they really just kind of hit their peak in 2013. Americans drink more than 90 million gallons of PBR, according to data from Euromonitor, which is basically 200% more than they drank in 2004. Man, you could ask yourself, why didn't they use that momentum and turn that into something even greater? Because today, once again, the brand is struggling, right? So from mm. from that peak of 2013, they plateaued for a little bit and they've actually been on a decline for many years now. So they again starting to struggle to keep up with the growth of what they've experienced in the early 2000s partly because they were marketing to a group of people that didn't want to be marketed to. And as soon as you start giving mass advertising to them, they will steer away from your brand, which is right. part of the problem. But also during this time, the whole craft beer authenticity market <laughs> yeah. kind of like exploded. So the small local breweries have a cachet that a national brand just cannot sustain. Right, It's a double-edged sort of building by authenticity is that you don't control the definition of that word. And when your audience moves on, you're kind of like left behind. And that's exactly what happened to Pabst during this time. To a certain degree, success is antithetical to the hipster ethos, right? That's the problem. And so the same factor that rebirthed the brand might be its second downfall. This is super interesting. You and I talked about this at length yesterday, that the whole thing about hipsters is that they're anti-establishment and they're right. anti-mass marketing, they're anti-consumerism. And this is exactly why they enjoyed this beer. Right. Because during this time, there was a run-up to this. There were no above-the-line TV ads running for PAPS, and that's exactly why they were consuming it. Yeah. That is not scalable because you can't scale right. <laughs> marketing to somebody that doesn't want to be marketed to, and that's the only reason why they're actually consuming your brand. Right. And the problem with that marketing of non-advertising as your selling point is then when you have craft beer and you have the market evolving and times are changing and your audience is aging out, then you have no mechanism for how to communicate with your audience and how to reposition yourself within a vastly changed landscape. And so they kind of acquiesced their voice. And hipsters are pretty committed into their hipsterism. Right. <laughs> it, it's, it's, the same, it's the same as a brand selling only to vegans. And then all of a sudden, they start targeting their brand to meat lovers. They'll really alienate the vegans up to that point. And this is the situation right. that Paps was in at this time. Yeah, exactly. So they've kind of painted themselves into a little bit of a corner in terms of kind of removing their ability to effectively advertise, to communicate, to position themselves, which is one of the core things that any brand needs to be able to do is own their positioning and craft their positioning within the marketplace. So that brings me to another question, which is, you know, you mentioned how important it is to kind of get in front of things. Were they too late that's a great question. And I think this is going to be very similar to the Bloomberg episode that we did a while back where we'll have to do a follow-up because since yeah. their decline or their plateau and then their decline, we have seen that they've started making some strategic 
hiring decisions and also new agencies. But that kind of like started this year. So it literally started in 2020. And I think they hired their new general manager or president, I think it's last year. Yeah. So in 2019, they go out and they hire the former CMO of of Smirnoff, Matt Brunn. And he is a very kind of prototypical beverage advertising guy. He's very storytelling driven. He's very advertising driven. And so it's really, really clear that Pabst is trying to make a significant shift in how they run their marketing and essentially going through another completely transformational period where they need to transition the brand from one stage to the next. And so the learning here is I think that you should never get comfortable and that I think as soon as you you think that you've won, you've made it, you're set, you're safe, that's when you're at the most dangerous point because that's the beginning of the decline. That's when you start having a bunch of blind spots. You stop thinking about innovation and being hungry. The decline is almost guaranteed at that point. Yeah. So let's give a listen to Matt Brunn talk about how they're trying to shift Pabst going forward. Pabst Blue Ribbon for us is about inspiring every next generation to be their true selves. Mm-hmm. So how do you, you know, kind of amplify this kind of harmony that can come from non-conformity? Every next generation wants to continue to kind of be themselves and change the world in their own spirit. So as part of redefining Pabst Blue Ribbon for the next generation, we actually went out to 10 individuals around America and asked them, what is the American dream? Mm-hmm. And in their own words, with authentic truth, they've told us what they feel the American dream is going to be. So that kind of storytelling that's true, honest, and real, mm-hmm. and then we're going to multi-channel that with a partner and an amplification partner with Vice, because we want to share their network and their amplification tool and their, and their kind of influence in culture as well. So when I think about great transformational storytelling, or you know, I feel like it has to be honest from the source and from real people and right. real stories. Right. Oh man, that's great. So the question here is, will they be able to shift their consumer base from this hipster to the next generation as you were talking about? It's a really good question and remains to be seen because the challenge is big because whatever they do, as soon as they start doing more mass communication, more actual storytelling, that's going to start alienating their core base. It's like somebody saying, yo, I used to really love that brand before they sold out. That's not the position that they want to be in. There's always something (laughs) more authentic, more cooler, more DIY. And that's the predicament that they're in right now, if they're going to continue going after the pop culture. And now you can look back and you can say, okay, hipster back then was the pop culture of the time, is really in the up and up. But again, they stumbled upon that. And it feels to me very much that they're now building their forward-thinking strategy based on previous success, which makes sense. But it's a slippery slope because I don't think that previous success was really very strategically thought out. I think it's something they stumbled upon. And it remains to be seen if it can be successful. Yeah. And I think certainly they're building on the past from the perspective of Matt talks about how just in general, the moment that we're in right now is that consumers are kind of sick of crafted advertising messages and they want real people. And that's why 
YouTubers are so popular and influencers and all of this kind of stuff. But influencers are also the, when you think of Instagram influencers, they're the polar opposite of hipsters, right? Influencers are considered Absolutely. as sellouts by a lot of people, right? Because I do all these brand promotions and blah, blah, blah. And you never know watching their YouTube videos or their Instagram, what they're actually getting paid to, to represent. And so to kind of make that transition, you're really just going from one end of the spectrum all the way to the other into the spectrum. And I'm sure that, you know, as he talks about real stories and real people, that there's going to be a lot of thinking and strategy that goes into what that actually means. Yeah. But there is going to have to be a lot of thinking and strategy that goes into what that actually means. So let's actually hear what he has to say about kind of what happens next with Pabst. What's next for you and for Pabst and, and the team that you're trying to build? I mean, what are kind of the ultimate goals you have for yourself? When you think about what you're trying to create there? Yeah, so I think Pabst Brewing Company constrains itself by the last two, well, the middle word. Mm-hmm. And I think if we truly connect with the next generation of consumers, we're going to have to unleash ourselves as a true lifestyle business mm-hmm. and actually think of ourselves independent of category definitions. Yeah, so he's leaning into lifestyle at this point. And you can see this through their product range, right? They've got, yeah, I think they've got an alcoholic coffee now. They've got a very strong 8% spritzer. They're definitely trying to diversify. And a whiskey, I believe it is. They're trying to diversify outside of just the brewing company or just a beer company, which is smart. Yeah, exactly. And it's going to remain to be seen how successful they are going to be with that because Again, it's antithetical to how their brand was known to be, even though things like their origin came from distilling versus brewing. They're definitely tapping into their past, but it's not necessarily what they're known for with consumers. That's exactly it. So if you think of they built their entire growth that they had on street teams, right? People going into the markets and, and providing products and everything else. And there are other brands that do that too. So if you think of like Jagermeister or you think of like Red Bull, you often see the Red Bull goals out or the Red Bull car handing out products around bars and so on. Jagermeister sells sex and Red Bull sells excitement. But those street teams are a very, very, very small subset of their overall advertising and marketing campaign that they're doing. So it's one thing selling lifestyle, but what's missing for me and everything that I've researched about this is what vehicles and tactics they're going to be using to sell that lifestyle to the audience, because that's something that they haven't done in the past. You know, they've only been relying on their influencer, grassroots type of stuff. So when they start making that shift to start playing in different, more mass media-esque type channels, I'll be very interested to see what happens to the core base and the actual authenticity of how someone perceives the brand. Right. And so I think the lesson here is that you really have to be willing to, in order to grow as a brand, to shed your skin, so to speak, even when times are good. And it's always better to do that from a position of strength rather than out of the necessity mm-hmm. of weakness and decline, which is usually what happens is we get kind of a little bit overconfident and then we're forced to innovate rather than having that 
be a part of our culture and how we move things forward on a regular basis. Yeah, you either get lazy or you get greedy, one of the two. And we've, we've talked <laughs> about that a lot in the show. Yeah, they're common themes for a reason because yeah. they're the easiest things to fall into that can cause problems. So stumbling into success, like Pabst kind of did with their really big comeback, it's a rare feat. What they did at a grassroots level is very rare. That's not going to happen every day. And then banking on lightning to strike twice in reinventing your brand just really isn't going to get you any sort of sustainability or scalability. And that's what they need is a mechanism to scale their message. Yeah. And the irony here is that they had their amazing comeback based on an audience that don't want to be recognized as being an audience. <laughs> the, the whole hipster culture, yeah. subculture, which is I find fascinating. You know, there's a natural seeding to how far you can push and grow a brand with this on-the-street influencer strategy that they had. And precisely because it takes a lot of work, a lot of groundwork, and that doesn't come very easily. Well, that sounds like a pretty good place for us to end the episode today. So thanks, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. Great. Speak to you guys next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.